Hey, everyone. I was recently interviewed by Garrett Collins of Percolated Media, producers of Gangrene and Goudreau, and Three Men and a Retrospective podcast. The conversation was so fun and interesting that I asked Garrett if I could post it here in the How Story Works feed as a bonus for y'all, and he graciously agreed. We talk about a lot of things, including Buffy, how I got started writing, and my new year writing magically workshop. I hope y'all enjoy the listen, and if you're a Stephen King fan, you're definitely going to want to check out Percolated because they're doing a whole retrospective on his adaptation novels. Take care, happy new year, and on the second, the new episode of How Story Works Conversations will start covering the structured chapters from the How Story Works book with me and Dr. Kelly Jones. All right, here's my interview with Garrett Collins. Welcome to a special holiday bonus podcast here on Perkley Media. I'm Garrett. I am flying solo today. And if you're wondering why I started this show off with the Buffy the Vampire Slayer theme, it's because of the guest I'll be talking to here in a little bit. But before I get to her, I did want to say that one thing I wanted to do when we started our own little spot here on the internet was I wanted to kind of give free reign to anybody to do whatever they wanted to do when it comes to media. Like, you know, this is why Matt has his forum to do his Jets podcast, which have turned out to be great. And what a dramatic soap opera season that team has had. And I love the fact that he's been there week after week, and he's done a tremendous job with those. He's got quite a following going with that show. When I thought about what I wanted to do, I was like, well, let me take it back to basics. You know, when I first started, people know when I was at Adventure Amigos, I kind of did an interview podcast where I'd interview people, and that was fun to do. And then I, when I moved to Binge, it was eventually I just kind of did what I wanted to do as far as retrospective. Well, mostly what I wanted to do. <laughs> Um, and so I thought, let's, let's go back to basics here. And one thing about Lonnie Diane Rich, who I'm going to be talking to here in a little bit, she is so informative and she's got ideas that I just, I wish I had the introspective thoughts that she has because she is amazing on the air. And, uh, I just got through interviewing her. I'm, I'm recording this right after I interviewed her and God, she's just amazing on the air. So I want to get to her right away. I'm not going to waste any time. So without any further ado, here is Lonnie Diane Rich. All right. Welcome everybody. Like I was saying in the intro, I'm so glad we have our own place to do podcasts because we don't have to run anything by anybody. If Matt wants to talk about the Jets and spew hatred towards the AFC, he can do that. If Adam wants to spew about comic book movies, he can do that. And if I want to talk to awesome people like the lovely individual I have on today, I can do whatever the hell I want. I want to say hi to hopefully soon to be friend, uh, somebody I admire, <laughs> Miss Lonnie Diane Rich. How are you? Hi, Garrett. I would absolutely consider us friends. Oh, so, yeah. sweet. I'm so honored. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to meet you and actually get to talk to you instead of just yeah. me just spewing love your way towards your podcast. <laughs> let me let me talk about basically how I found you. Yeah. I, I did this weird thing where since I've gotten with my current girlfriend, we, we go through TV mm-hmm. shows. And we went through Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She had gone through it for the very first time. And oh. I have so many podcasts loaded onto my phone that I listen to while I go to work, while I'm on breaks, mm-hmm. while I'm editing po- my podcast, whatever it is I, I have podcasts <laughs> on. I, I have so many. But I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I want to listen to something that actually dissects Buffy and talks about it. And I did a mm-hmm. search on my Podbean and found a couple – and yours captivated me. And I'm oh, going to say the one thing that made me basically forever worship the podcast airwaves you talk on. 
All right. You said one thing that will always stick with me, and I've probably used it on my podcast. And if I have and you spot it, I'll be more than happy to write you a check. Uh, basically, you guys were talking about season two of Buffy. And there's uh-huh. the episode where Angel loses his soul. And yeah. they have a very romantic scene in that mm-hmm. show, which TV shows love to do every once in a while. At least they did back mm-hmm. in the 90s, late 90s. And you said something where Whedon shot that. Whereas it was looking like the most romantic thing ever. But if you've ever seen two people kiss, it's like seeing a dog eat peanut butter. And that is your exact quote. (laughs) Yeah. You know what's funny is when people quote me back at me, I usually don't know. Like, I don't remember having said that. But almost every time I'm like, yeah, that tracks. That sounds like something I would have said. Absolutely. That tracks and sounds like something I would have said. Yeah, watching people kiss on film is very different from how, like, it is when people actually kiss in real life. That's why it's rude to do it in front of other people because it's freaking gross. It is. You know, but the thing is, like, like everything with film stories, it's all about you're, you're trying to represent how it feels, not how it is. So I think everybody gets a pass on that. But, yeah, no, it is. It's it's really gross to see people kiss. <laughs> I kiss like that, you know. I mean, yeah. And just- and like what I do is I work nights. I get home about 10, 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning and I will mm-hmm. sit up, I'll edit, I'll read for a bit and then I'll go to bed while she works from home and then I'll wake mm-hmm. up and then we'll watch some TV together and then we'll, we'll mm-hmm. lay back down about 9 o'clock before I have to get back up at 11. And mm-hmm. that show happened to be on while we had just been laying down and she laughed and I mm-hmm. laughed and it had to have been about 10 minutes. So... <laughs> You are forever ingrained. Well, I'm glad. And hello to your girlfriend Uh, from me. Yes. This is all new to her. Like, she's never been with somebody who has been in the media, has done media. So this mm-hmm. is, and I think she's getting a yeah. kick out of it. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. We did one commentary where we were drinking and watching Transformers and I think she wants to do another mm-hmm. one. Right. Oh yeah. So fun. So fun. I can't even tell you how many people I have dragged into podcasting who had no intention of doing it, but I was like, trust me, it'll be fun. And we would go and do it together and then it ends up being a thing. So yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. I think your girlfriend should absolutely do as many of those as possible. She, she definitely has the personality for it. Let's, uh, let's, talk about you go ahead wait what's your girlfriend's name her name is jen jennifer jen hi jen it's so lovely to meet you Uh, all right i just want to say hello love that uh let's talk about you a bit where were you born oh uh i was born in dutchess county new york state new york okay so you were surrounded by film what exactly was it that you saw that made you want to get into writing you know what's really funny is that I um I, I was always writing from the time that I was a kid, you know, and I ended up um I remember my mother always used to talk about how like in the sixth grade I was put into the gifted program for my writing and I have no idea what I wrote. But it was one of those things that like never occurred to me that it was a thing that people do. Like I read books all the time, but it never occurred to me that people could just like write and tell stories for a living. So I ended up becoming enamored with television. And then I went to the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications mm-hmm. at Syracuse University uh, to, to go like pursue a career in television um, and loved that. But it, it took me a while to realize that my favorite thing was the writing, was the storytelling. Um, and so when I didn't want to move to Los Angeles because I don't think that I would thrive in Los Angeles. Um, that's when I started writing novels. And it, it finally struck me that, like, I can tell stories from anywhere. And then that was when my passionate love affair with stories and storytelling really got off the ground. 
Wow. So you had no intentions of moving to Los Angeles. No. No. I wanted to work in TV, but I went to Los Angeles and it just, I knew it was a place where I wasn't going to thrive. There are certain places that, you know, can be lovely and wonderful and different people. I have a friend who went out there, absolutely loved it, made fun of me for being in Syracuse for as long as I was, you know. Um, but there's just certain places that you vibe with and places that you don't. And I don't think that I would have done well there. <laughs> like I had, a, I had a bad enough opinion of myself as it was. Like I always struggled with my sense of self-esteem and, and value. And I feel like there are a lot of ways in which women, especially in um, the television industry, can be devalued. I think you have to have a very, very strong sense of yourself. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I was lacking, you know, when I was younger. I got it now, <laughs> but I'm not really interested in doing TV anymore. Um, but at the time, I think I just knew that if I went there, it would probably destroy my sense of self. So I just didn't go. <laughs> doing all sorts of other weird things all over the place. I think there's a lot of wonderful things about it. Like I think that, but I think that if you, if you don't have a very strong sense of self and a very strong sense of confidence in who you are and your talent and your value, it could be very easy to get crushed. I had a lot of friends who got crushed out there. Um, and I just, it was something that I just knew I didn't have the ability to deal with, you know, um, at that point in my life when I was making that particular choice. So yeah, yeah, but it's, it's a rough industry. I mean, this is a very demanding mm -hmm. industry. It can be very difficult to work in. Did you work on any TV shows or did you, did, were you just writing just to write? What exactly was your end goal when you went to college? Oh, when I went to college, I wanted to be a director, and then I decided I wanted to be a producer, um, and then I decided that I wanted to be a writer. Um, and I, I figured that out because I had to take, there were required writing classes that I had to take. Mm. And when I took them, I had this one professor who was like, you really need to be a writer. And I was like, oh, Okay, like it's just it's so funny, like how many times you have to be told something, or at least I had to be told something in order for it to actually sink in. Um, and so I I ended up like doing a lot of writing of like spec TV scripts and things like that. Um, and then I was unable to finish college, and I was going to go out to Los Angeles with a friend of mine who was an actress. Uh, but we ended up going to Alaska for a summer, um, and then that is where I met my kid's dad. I came back to, went to Tucson where he was, which I figured was closer to Los Angeles than Syracuse, so it was kind of like a pit stop. Um, and then it ended up just kind of putting me on a different path until finally I started writing novels when, uh, some years later when we moved back to Alaska, um, and I was raising two kids and I was staying at home with them, and I just felt this deep need to write, you know, so I just started writing novels. And the thing is, is that like my passion is really for stories. I'm, mm. I'm fairly form agnostic. Like I don't, I believe that stories can be told in any form and that yes, every form has its own benefits, but I don't like when I teach storytelling, I don't teach it to, you know, the screenplay or to the novel or to the graphic novel, to whatever. I teach it to telling the story and then you find a way that you can express that story within the form that you choose that you like the best. Um, and once I discovered that I could write stories in a novel form instead of like, say, a screenplay or a TV episode or whatever, uh, that was incredibly freeing for me because it allowed me to be able to live anywhere I wanted, live whatever kind of life I wanted from anywhere really in the country. And that to me was really exciting. And it's one of the things that's amazing now, you know, that we're seeing um, basically the disintermediation of mass media yeah. where 
where people can have a television studio in their basement. They can pull stuff together. They can do, you know, um, fiction podcasts. They can mm-hmm. do like there's so many different ways that you can express story, that you can write, that you can do the thing that you love to do without necessarily having to be in an environment that might not be a good match for you. It's crazy how many different avenues there are to express yourself and uh Mm -hmm. you know it goes from writing to social media and Mm -hmm. you know and not all of it's the most healthy but it's i it it does bring up something though that i did want to talk to you about in that you have written Mm -hmm. i i I did a little digging on you you've written 12 books right (laughs) I have, yeah. Well, not that kind of digging. Thirteen, if you include how story works. Yeah, but it's the nonfiction ones, how story works, and I never, I never include that. But yes, twelve novels and then one nonfiction storytelling book. Wow. So you, yeah. you have how many kids do you have? I have two. You have two kids, so you're raising two kids, and you yeah. have written twelve books. See, yeah. here's the thing: like, I come home. And my girlfriend gets on me because I'm editing, editing, and she's like, "You gotta go to bed. You gotta go to bed." And then I want to read because I, I'm doing. We're right. doing this huge, nonstop Stephen King retrospective where we're going to be reviewing. Ooh. We're reviewing every single one of his adapted works from publishing oh public, in order of publication. So I'm That's reading amazing. his books in preparation for that, mm-hmm. taking notes on them, and then we're mm-hmm. going to be doing that whole series. And I don't have enough time in the day, and I have. So so many ideas in my head. I've written scripts, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. how do you, as somebody who is raising kids and being like, how do you find the time to write? Do you have any advice for people who are have that great American novel in their head and can't find the time? Do you have any exercises or things that we can do? Yeah, well, I mean, when it comes right down to it, though, you always have to make a choice, don't you? Like, mm. uh, there are a lot of people who will come out and say you can do it all. You know, you can be everything. You can find the time in the day, yada, yada, yada. It's not always just about time, though. It's also about energy. Um, and if you are doing something during the day that is draining that battery, right, um, then you have to refill it before you can write. It can get very challenging. Um, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. Yes, I had two kids. I was raising two kids uh, for a chunk of that time. I was a single mother. Um, it was really, really difficult, you know, finding that time. And a lot of it came out of, you know, time that I probably would have otherwise been spending with my kids. Like, yeah. You know, we've had this discussion about, like, I, you know, I am a person who, like, I, I feel a need to work. I love my work. I'm a woman who's, you know, number one, first, tr- one true love was always the work. And I tried to explain it to my kids when they were little and tried to balance the time that I made for me to write with the time that I had for them. Um, and I think sometimes it came out of, it definitely came out of the house cleaning, you know, time budget. That definitely is where a lot of that uh, got stolen from. So uh, the thing is, is that, like, for anybody who listening who feels like oh my god how do you find the time how i can't find the time you can't find the time because the priority choices that you're making at that time are for other things and that's not a bad thing like that's not terrible it's just that like you cannot you cannot go into um writing or anything that you really really want to do with the mindset that you're going to be able to do that and you're going to do that or Right. And then you have to prioritize if you can take out a few things, you know, from the the necessary like, you know, my time with my kids was necessary. I did that. Uh, was my house clean? Oh, my God, Garrett. If somebody had if somebody had walked in that house from an agency 
my children might have been taking, I mean, it was, okay, it wasn't quite that bad. It wasn't quite that bad. But like, you know, like laundry uh, was always on the floor. Like, um, the place was always a mess. Um, I don't even know like how many times I vacuum in the course of a year, but you could probably, one hand would probably do it, right? Um, so I made those choices. Like, I made those choices to love my kids dearly and fiercely and live filthy. Like, um, I made, I, I, these are just the, you know, like, and, and so I, I just, anybody listening like I, I it really bothers me when people are like oh well if you take 20 minutes at the end of the day and then do this before you shower and then do this and da, 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 that's not how it works you have so much energy there's a certain amount of time every day that I think a lot of us are on our phones scrolling through because we simply do not have the mental you know or emotional energy to deal with one more goddamn thing and let's not forget how the last like six years or so um, have been incredibly draining on us as a society. Mm. You know, like we are going through huge, incredible, challenging transformations. And then a pandemic hit on top of that. Um, so my biggest heartbreak is when people look at themselves and see failure to do the thing that they want to do rather than understand that they're making the choices that they have to make. Um, and that if you can stand to live in a filthy house, which I can, <laughs> I prefer it clean. But I can stand it, right? So to me, that was just more important that I take that time and I do, you know, my work then. I'm also like a morning person, you know, so like I would get up at four in the morning and write until seven and then get the kids on the bus, mm. you know, and that worked for me. Like that wasn't a sacrifice for me because I'm a morning person and my best hours, like everybody I think has like four hours every day where they are optimum, mm -hmm. right? If you can figure out what those hours are and try to use those hours for the things you care about the most and then half-ass the other things, that's another way to get the energy, right? Half-assing stuff also, cannot recommend it enough. <laughs> the half-ass on things, like we get so caught up in our own sense of the, the necessity to be perfect and to do things in such a way that they meet this fictional standard that was set by people who benefit and profit from us being exhausted, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I think that, like, if you can half-ass, whatever you do to, to like pay your rent every day, fucking half asset. Yes. Yes. Take an extra 20 minutes on your lunch break and write them like seriously. I mean, the capitalist man has been completely depleting us for years. Mm -hmm. Now nobody can afford like rent or a house payment. Like it's half of your monthly income. It's insane. Yeah. Take some of that back. Like I am, a, I am a thousand percent a half asser, and hopefully, if I ever have to apply for a regular job outside of the house, nobody listens to this. Um, but I'm, <laughs> I'm a real fan of the half ass. <laughs> Oh my God! Once again, you exceed expectations with that question. Uh, <laughs> so you're half-assing your way through life. You're doing all your creating. <laughs> now, when was it that you decided? You know what? I think I would like to podcast my ideas too. Oh my goodness! Um, you know what's funny is podcasts kind of started as a thing. I think in like the early to mid aughts. Um, yeah. I remember Leo Laporte. Uh, it was trying to make them netcast so they wouldn't be Apple branded, but of course he lost that battle. Um, but I but I remember listening to podcasts at that time, and I absolutely loved it. Like, and I remember one of the podcasts that I listened to the most were, were these two women. They called themselves Lime and Violet, right? And they didn't. They were knitters, right? And I'm a knitter, so I listened to these two women. Um, get drunk and knit with no audio quality at all and dogs barking in the background, everything, you know. 
And I was so enamored with the form. And then I was like, you know what? I'm a writer. My friend Cindy is a writer. Let's do a podcast together called We'll Write for Wine, where we do what Lime and Violet do. Except instead of talking about knitting, we'll be talking about writing. And we'll also make sure, you know, I had a background in production. So I was like, we'll make sure that we have, you know, headphones that give us, you know, decent enough audio quality and all that kind of stuff. And so we started We'll Write for Wine. That was March of 2007. That, again, was an instance where I was like, hey, you want a podcast with me? And my friend Cindy was like, I don't even know what podcast is and I said hey it's like internet radio trust me it'll be fun and we ended up doing that for a couple of years it was so fun we had such a great time I love I love talking about things Mm -hmm. I love talking about ideas I love smart people so like the fact that I work with and have podcasted with some incredibly smart people has been absolute joy to me Um, and so that just kind of became a thing that I really enjoyed doing on top of that um, you know, I had gotten uh, my first book contract as a result of a NaNoWriMo book uh, that I wrote. And for anybody out there who doesn't know what NaNoWriMo is, that's National Novel Writing Month. Um, it is the month of November, 30 days. You've got to write 50,000 words. I was part of the online writers group at that point. A bunch of the people were doing that, so we all did it together. I remain close friends with some of those people to this day. Um, but I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I was liked writing, but I didn't really understand. And then I wrote a novel, and I sent it to a friend of mine, and she sent it to her agent. Her agent signed me six weeks later at a two-book contract with Warner wow. Books. And I was like, oh, but I don't know what I'm doing. Like, they paid me for two books at once, right? And I was like, okay, now I have to write this second book, and I don't know what I did that worked. I don't know why it worked. I don't know how it worked. I don't know what's going on. I know I had instinct for stories, but I didn't understand how they worked. It was just magic. And every now and again, the magic would take off, and then sometimes it wouldn't, you know. Um, so I got really excited about learning about story, and the best way that I could figure out to learn about story was to do analysis. Mm. So I started doing a lot of podcasts where I would take things, like, you know, we did um, – uh, Listen up, A-Holes, the yeah. Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, and talked about stories there, um, talked about stories with Buffy. Talked, I mean, basically, all of my podcasts, they may be about a particular show or a particular, you know, thing or whatever, but they're all just me trying to understand stories. Um, and at the same time, I was also teaching at the Newhouse School in Syracuse. They hired me on to teach their screenwriting class. So I was teaching those kids how stories worked. So I was learning all of this stuff, figuring it all out, and then went and taught it. And that was how I ended up pulling together my narrative theory that is encapsulated in How Story Works, which is the book that I wrote last year. And I love that book, by the way. Oh, yeah. I got a digital copy of it, and I was reading it on my lunch breaks and things. And uh, oh. it's it's superb if anyone wants to get into writing. And you have a class, too, which we'll talk about towards the end of this. Yeah. But it's mm-hmm. tremendous. Um, yeah. You know what? Podcasts are interesting because when I was going to college, I would ride a bus and I would listen to podcasts on my way to school, basically mm-hmm. talking about movies. And then I ended up eventually working for that site while podcasting. And my show pretty much started out as me interviewing people, like I'm interviewing you today, pretty much. But yes. it's, it's mm-hmm. like when you interview, when you set up an interview with somebody in that business, like you, you got to mm-hmm. go through their manager, and then their manager's like, okay, you can't talk about this, you can't talk about that, right. and you're, you're limited. Mm-hmm. And I felt very limited. And one of my friends who was a director. Uh, she told me, she said, you know what, Garrett, you are a very funny guy. You need to let loose. Like, just do a mm-hmm. review. 
podcast. Like you just review things and just be yourself. Mm -hmm. And the more I thought about it, I'm like, you know what? I look up to Roger Ebert. He's like one of my idols. And Mm -hmm. I was like, my husband loves him too. Oh God. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, I would like to do a podcast in, you know, a Roger Ebert style podcast in radio form pretty much. And, you know, we dissect things. I don't know if you listen to our show, but we dissect Mm -hmm. movies scene by scene and we go over them and you know sometimes we're snarky sometimes we do analysis and but basically mm-hmm. like when I listen to yours like I want mine to sound like yours where you do deep analysis of these things I mean you go oh, way you. deep yeah. um and I and I love that about I nerd show. out like yeah I'm, you do you know <laughs> you do and that's the fun of it for me is that I get I'm so nerdy about stories that I will definitely I go deep and I feel like I don't go deep through any like you know uh, you know positive quality of my own to any my like virtue of my own it's just that I can't help it I just nerd out about stories that's what I do I am a straight man in a very happy relationship but I will jump on the same um, pedestal that you do when it comes to Dark Wesley I'll just tell that to you right now oh I'm telling you <laughs> um, it's good stuff <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about – so you have, uh, in addition to your book, How Story Works, where you talk about mm-hmm. writing, you also are starting a class? Is this – Yes. Talk about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, um, it's the year of writing magically. Um, I had this thought that I really – like, I've got a book that I need to write. Um, I had a very traumatic experience about six years ago. Um, it took a lot of time healing from that. During that time, I couldn't write. Um, now I'm getting back into it. Now I feel ready to write. I feel excited about writing. I'm, I've got like ideas flying at me all over the place. Um, but I felt like I needed some kind of structure, you know, to go into it. And I was like, well, what kind of, you know, writing experience would I want? Um, and so I built that into the year of writing magically, um, which is basically like an MFA program for people who don't want to have the shit beat out of them, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a year and you come in with, you have an idea, you can have something you've already started working on. Any point in the process, you can come in. Um, and we walk through, through the course of a year, and that's part of it too, is that it's, it's gotta be like, NaNoWriMo is awesome and it's communal and it's great, but it's intense. And it is really, really hard mm. to keep that up for 30 days and write your draft, you know? But also with NaNoWriMo, you don't get the discovery phase, which is the thing that a lot of people end up kind of skimping on because it doesn't feel like writing. So we're gonna validate the discovery phase. We're gonna do collages, we're gonna do soundtracks, we're gonna talk about the book, we're gonna brainstorm storm, you know, um, all of that kind of stuff. Then we're going to go into the drafting, which will be two months instead of one. But we will have done all of that discovery and kind of like built up all that and all that energy, you know, gotten the engines running. Um, And then we go through drafting and then we go through like the first revision, you know, which is the one that you do after your first Mm -hmm. read of the book. Um, and then by the end of the year, we'll be in revision number two, which comes from a round robin critique so that everybody will pass their book on to the next person in the group um, and everybody will critique each other. And part of the reason why I really wanted to do um, workshop people critiquing each other's novels um, or long form, it's just a long form, it can be a screenplay, it can be, again, I'm form agnostic, mm-hmm. it can be anything, right? Um, but the reason why I wanted that is because one of the things that happens in um critiques and I think can happen a lot in MFA programs um, is this idea of, you know, a writer coming in and saying, rip me to shreds, rip it apart, tell me I'm terrible, tell me my mom is fat, like all of this kind of stuff, right? You mm-hmm. know, um, and I think that that is um, an incredibly destructive way <laughs> to write. Yeah. 
Um, so one of the things that I'm a huge proponent of is uh, what's your favorite part feedback, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what basically that is, this when when my eldest was 12 years old, they were the ones who, who the one who taught me that, right? Uh, they asked me to read one of their things. They asked my good friend, who was also a writer, uh, to read a little short story that they'd written for school or whatever. And so my my friend and I were were rip, rip it apart people. Like we ripped each other's work apart mercilessly all the time. And we loved it. That was the way it was supposed to be, right? You know. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up giving my my kid this feedback. You know, we started saying, well, you know, you've got a protagonist problem here. You might want to start it a little bit later when the conflict really starts and yada, yada, yada. And my kid looked at both of us and said, no, I just want to know what's your favorite part. And in that moment, like, I had this huge, like, light bulb, lightning strike moment where I was like, oh, yeah, of course. First of all, they're 12. Like, let's not. <laughs> yeah. Let's not rip the kid apart before we build them up, yeah. you know. And I'm like, but also, it's it is so difficult to develop the confidence to write. Um, and we get so focused on fixing the things that we do bad and focusing on the things that we're not doing as well, instead of building up our strengths. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing: like, I have read books that I have loved that have had problems. I've watched shows and enjoyed stories that have had problems. You know that have like maybe started a little later than I would have. Maybe they had a prologue, Mm -hmm. which I tend to rail against, like all of these kinds of things. But we're still magical and wonderful, you know? Um, And so your work can be magical and wonderful. And I think that the first thing you need to know about your work is what makes it magic. Where Mm -hmm. is my magic? What is it about me and my work that works really well here? And then once you've done that, like the final revision is not going to be, or the final, yeah, critique where everybody's passing it along to one to the other person is not going to be what's your favorite part. Up until that point, it is. So for the first like six, seven months of this, you're getting no feedback that isn't what your favorite, what's your favorite part. That's it, right? And at that point, by the time we get to the second revision, you're going to know enough about what your strengths are. You're going to know enough about what you did well. You're going to know enough about what you need to keep that you don't accidentally cut something that's good mm-hmm. because you're so insecure because your first bit of feedback was somebody ripping it to shreds. And which isn't necessary either. I mean, sometimes people ripping it to shreds, they're not right. They're not right, but they're looking for the things that are wrong. They're looking for the things that are broken rather than looking for the things that are working. And if you're looking for something, you're going to find it. So they might find something that maybe, maybe it could be better. Maybe. I don't know. You know, but like, is that really something that detracts from the overall quality of the story? You know, what is it that builds up a story and makes it the best thing it can be? It's the magic. So um, so my feeling about this, when I started thinking about what kind of workshop I wanted, I was like, oh, I need to teach that workshop. <laughs> I was like, nobody else is doing this that I know of, is doing something that is, is positive and affirming and something that will build up people who participate in it. Um, so I'm so excited about it. I absolutely cannot wait. It starts in March. Um, and anybody who's interested in, in looking at it and applying for, uh, I have a limited number of, of spaces available. Uh, but you can go to yearofwritingmagically.com, and that's where all the information is. Uh-huh. I was going to put it on on the article, but you saved me that trouble. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's very interesting that you say that that you got to build someone up. God, you're, you're hitting so many nerves with me right now. Because when I was in junior high, I had a creative writing class, and our assignment was to write a story. And I wrote a story. I was twelve, 
maybe 13, mm -hmm. about a porcelain doll that grew fingernails and stalked a family. All right. I was a disturbed Ooh. child. Okay. <laughs> um, I got this story back from my teacher and I got a B plus on it. And it, they said mm -hmm. it was, this is the most scared I've ever been reading a story. And that <gasps> gave me the confidence. I'm like, you know what? I can do yeah. this. And it's mm -hmm. never left my head. So the fact that you say that, it's really, really true. And that's a very yeah. good thing that you're doing. Um, let's go back to podcasts. You know, Chipperish Media. Okay. Now, is that your site or is that a site you're working for? Oh, no, that's mine. It's yours. Chipperish Media. Okay. I, um, yeah, I had a, another um, uh, podcast uh, business at another business where I was doing like all my writing stuff and everything. And that uh, got torn down. <laughs> that got destroyed. So at that point where, um, where all of that had fallen apart for me, um, I just woke up one morning and I thought chipperish. And the thing is, what chipperish is, what it comes from is that a friend of mine who I absolutely adore, but very much uh, describes herself as an Eeyore, right, um, <laughs> was having a really bad day. And I am a Tigger, right? <laughs> so I uh, bounced into her car, we were running errands, and I was talking about all the things. Like she would tell me what was pissing her off or what wasn't working or why she was feeling terrible. And I would be like, here's the bright side. Here's the good thing. Here's the blah, blah, blah. This is why it's a good thing. This is why everything's going to be okay, you know. And finally, she just said, stop spouting that chipperish at me. <laughs> it's chipper, chipperish, right? And so chipperish became kind of an identifier for me for a number of years. Um, but I hadn't really thought about it until that one morning I woke up and I was like, chipperish media. It's actually very similar to how I came up with the Year of Writing Magically workshop. Um, I just woke up one morning. I was like, that's it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it just came to me, and I just knew this was something that I had to do. So I, I launched that in February of 2017, and that has been my space to do all of my podcasts from. Um, and it has been an absolute joy. It is so much fun to uh, to be able to build the kind of shows that I want to listen yeah. to, you know, uh, to be able to bring the kind of people on that I want to listen to. Um, and that's one of the wonderful things is like, you know, when you run something, you can build it in the way that you want it to exist. And I, I wanted it to exist in, a, in just this space where people could just love and nerd out about all kinds of stories. Yeah. Oh, that's very true, Lonnie. It's, you know, my colleague, Matthew Goudreau, he is, mm -hmm. you know, he, he, he used to review for sites. He's my podcast partner and he yeah. is in his late twenties and his favorite show mm -hmm. is the West Wing. And ah, so yeah. he, uh, I'm pretty sure I, when I was talking to the boys today, I was letting them know, well, I got this interview going on today and I sent them the site. I'm pretty sure he'll be mm -hmm. diving into those. Uh, so, and that just proves that, you know, you're not just doing Buffy Angel. I mean, you're doing uh, Good Omens, which is a book that a friend of mine got yeah. me last year that I loved. Mm -hmm. And I want to dive mm -hmm. into that show and that podcast as well. Uh, West Wing, uh, Angel, uh, you, mm -hmm. got, you have a lot of things over there that would appeal to yeah, anybody. Yeah, we just did Sandman. Yeah. Neil Gaiman. Yeah, I, I saw I'm, that, I'm, yeah. I'm coming to the Neil Gaiman podcast network, basically. Um, <laughs> I hooked up with an editor, Elisa Quitney, who's a, a wonderful writer, and um, she was an editor for uh, the Sandman series at DC Vertigo uh, back in the day. So she asked me to do Sandman with her. I was like, yeah. So I did it. It's, of course, it's amazing. I absolutely love it. It's incredible. And then Neil mentioned not too long ago that they were going to be, he was going to be doing a, a Nancy voice, which is one of my oh, favorite of his novels. Yeah. And now that's going to become a series as well. So I'm like, well, uh, clearly I have to do that too. And he was like, yeah, you do. So, <laughs> so definitely going to, going to make a lot of time to do that. But yeah, like it's, there's so many things. It's so fun. I think the, um, 
you know, the MCU one was so overwhelming because we got into all of the TV shows and all that stuff. And at a certain point, I was like, okay, I think I've talked enough about Marvel that I feel like I've gotten what I'm going to get out of Marvel, you know. <laughs> um, it's so fun, though, to be able to talk about comics. A lot of people don't take comics seriously. Um, and if, if you don't take comics seriously, this is an invitation, right? Um, start reading them yeah. because the work that is done in comic books is so efficient and they got like 24 pages they tell a whole story and the art the work that the artists do what happens i've got a i've got a podcast that joshua who was my partner joshua unruh who was my partner on uh listen to bayholes the the marvel cinematic universe podcast we started in the gutter about comic books because when i was doing the sandman comic books i was like joshua you never told me that these were amazing he's like i told you every day that comics are amazing <laughs> and he knows everything about comics and superheroes and everything yeah. he's amazing so I pulled him in to do In the Gutter, which we're bringing that back in January. We're doing another season of that, which is going to be really, really fun. Um, but to be able to talk about comics and all of that stuff is just really incredible. And now I have completely talked myself away from whatever your original question was. I hope I answered <laughs> No, it. you did. You absolutely <laughs> did. And my colleague, Adam, will be very happy to hear that because he was the one who pushed for us our very first shows that we did were the Batman shows where we did all the ah. cinematic Batman movies and, yeah. you know, and they would go into the comics and I used to read them as a child. I haven't read them much as an adult. Mm -hmm. um, there was a couple other things I wanted to talk to you about and you, you've mm -hmm. just been going round and round and I, I've been losing my, my train of thought here. I, I wander <laughs> off a topic. You cannot keep me on no. a topic and for love or money. I really And am. that's perfectly fine. <laughs> Um, oh, you mentioned here's here's what I was going to talk to you about. So you mentioned yeah. earlier that you know there's nothing more rewarding than having your own avenue to spew whatever it is you want to do. And yeah. you mm -hmm. know, me and Matt, when we we came from a place called Binge Media, and they are very mm -hmm. nice guys. I'm still friends with them. I'm yeah. not saying anything bad about them. But when I would mm -hmm. bring stuff up to do with them, they would tell me, "Well, why don't you try this?" Like, for example, mm -hmm. me and Matt really, really wanted to do retrospective of M Night Shyamalan. Uh, filmography. Mm -hmm. I mean, to see this guy go from on top of the world to having the biggest ego to being humble to <laughs> being on top of the world again is kind of cool, you know? Yeah. yeah. And they recommended, well, why don't you just talk about Edgar Wright, Wright's movies, do those movies because he has a new one coming out. I'm like, wait a second here. How, what fun is it going to yeah. be to talk about Edgar Wright? Oh, that was a great shot. Yeah, that was a great shot. Like, exactly. You know what I'm saying? And the fact that it is so rewarding once we, um, we left that site last year and we started this this year mm -hmm. that it's just we get to talk about whatever the fuck we want, and it's amazing. <laughs> right, and it's really, it's fun to be able to do that. And sometimes, you know, like the reason why a company that is, you know, making a lot of money and working at a, at a bigger level will do things like that is because they're always thinking about how do we get the most clicks, mm -hmm. how do we get the most people in, how do we get the most. Um, and I am the opposite of that, which is why I work so much and make so little money. Um, because. Yeah. <laughs> You know, because I, I want to talk about the things that I love. You know, I want to be able to talk about them in the way that I that I want to talk about them. And in a way that I think a lot of a lot of those bigger places that are doing these bigger podcasts, they don't necessarily have that passion for what the story cool. is. I mean, sometimes they do. Sometimes they, I've heard some great ones from like places like The Ringer. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah. Um, but in general, like in a lot of times, I'll listen to those and they'll just be empty. They're just chasing the, hey, we're going to talk about this. And so they end up talking about like, you know, um, you know, which of the actors on the thing that they like. And I'm like, no, talk to me about the story. Mm -hmm. Like, it's all about the story, you know. 
Um, so yeah, and I, I understand that people need to run a business. I understand that people are doing, you know, um, what they want to do because they're there to make a dollar. Like I get it. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that like, I want to do what I want to do and I want to talk about it the way that I want to talk about it. And what that has done for me is I have a, I have a small following, but I have a passionate you following, you know, and I have a very loyal following. And that to me is so much more rewarding, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, definitely like it's a struggle to build it. I've also only been chipper for the past few years, um, because I was also working full time. Um, so, so, you know, I haven't really had the, the time to like put into it to like building it up and, and, you know, letting people know that these things exist, which is, I'm terrible at that. I'm terrible. Yeah. Nobody knows I exist because I don't tell anybody, you know? Um, so like I'm, I'm working on all of those things now. Um, but the, the work in itself is like, again, I'm a woman who's in love with the work i do the work for the work's sake and then what comes of it comes of it you oh, know you're speaking my language because i mean we, we're just running a <laughs> blog site you know we're not trying to go massive we just want to get our thoughts out there and the fact that we have that yeah. avenue to do it and like we were talking about earlier you know there's so many avenues to be able to do that it's very rewarding yeah uh i want to touch on buffy just for a second because that is my number oh, two favorite show of all time i showed my girlfriend this year she absolutely loved it mm -hmm. and you talk about something on still pretty that i really wanted to dive into with you and and because it, it hit a nerve with me okay. you talked yeah. about how buffy has great episodes you know funny episodes but they never really talked about how she's dealing with the grief or mm -hmm. there's no real episodes of her dealing with what she went with the last time. Like the last time she went through something extremely mm -hmm. traumatic and the next time she's fighting yeah. like a mini troll or something, you know, right. uh, that was really right. interesting. Mm -hmm. And I never really thought about that. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely one of the things that I did talk about a lot was kind of this, uh, this erasure of Buffy's yes. trauma. Like she went through so many really difficult things, you know, um, and yeah, and I think probably if you're talking about the troll, it was like right after she had gone through the whole, I think like breakup with Riley yeah. and her mom had been sick and mm -hmm. all this stuff. And then we've got this silly episode where she's talking, she's upset about Anya and Xander, you know, possibly having a fight or breaking up because she had just broken up with, with Riley and we're laughing. Mm -hmm. We're laughing about all this stuff and we're using her as a joke. And then the next episode, she's like, Riley, who, yeah. you know, um, and, and there's a lot of things that happen to her that we kind of um, move past her trauma. We get a little of it. And when she was bad at the beginning of season mm -hmm. two, where she's recovering from, you know, her, her bout with the master at the end of season one, we get a little bit at the beginning of season three after, you know, of course, what happened with mm -hmm. Angel at the end of season too. Um, and there's a lot of trauma with that. Um, but a lot of times we just kind of skip past the trauma. And part of that would be um, because we, um, if we, if we dealt with actually what Buffy's going through all the time and how traumatic her life is on a daily basis, you know, um, I mean, she basically left one of her best friends for dead in, in season mm -hmm. two and lied to me. Right? You know, um, that's a hugely traumatic yeah. experience and then she just walks away from it, you know. Um, so yeah, it was 
one of those things where, uh, but when they did deal with her trauma, which I think is a lot of what season six is, you know, season six is Buffy trauma pretty much all the time, mm-hmm. you know, um, people kind of, I think, uh, people have a lot of problems with six for a lot of different reasons, and some of which I, I completely understand. I think overall it is probably one of the um, most underestimated uh, seasons of the series. I think it's quite, quite good. There's a lot of good stuff going on in season six. Um, but when she was dealing with her trauma, people were like, oh, get over it already, right? Because I think they've yeah, been trained to be like, oh, yeah. get over it. You know, like uh, like Buffy gets over it and then has fun and then jokes around. And like, yeah, you know, sometimes the laughter stops. Yeah. Like she's been through some stuff. You know, it's been hard. Her mother died and then she died and then all that kind of stuff. It's a lot, you know. Um so, yeah, I think that the way that they process Buffy's trauma or sometimes fail to process Buffy's trauma was kind of a challenging thing in Buffy because we, I think, overall um, culturally have this idea that uh, get over it is a mm-hmm. big thing, right? You know, get over it, stop your whining. Uh, that especially appeals to women in some ways and it appeals to men in a lot of other ways um, where, where men, I think, traditionally in our society have been discouraged. Yep. Um, from feeling their emotions, from expressing their emotions, from talking about their emotions. They're supposed to fight and fuck their emotions. I'm sorry. If no, you're, no, a, you're good. Please. Uh, Curse you as can much say as that. you want. Anyway. Yeah, okay. So, um, so I think that all of that means that a lot of our traumatic processing does come from our fiction, you know? And so we get drawn to shows like Buffy where um, basically it always makes it makes me think of that moment in um, in the Princess Bride where the six fingered man says to the death and then Wesley gets up and says no to the pain <laughs> right um, and I feel like that's why we want pain in our stories because we actually use stories to help us process our own pain our own trauma um, and that is an incredibly valuable service yeah. that these stories do for us and Joss Whedon I mean for you know Joss Whedon is a complicated person, but I think one of the things that he does really well is he writes mm-hmm. to the pain. Um, you know, almost maybe a little bit too much sometimes, almost a little bit as uh, less as a trauma processing is that I'm going to break your heart guy. He kind of identified with that and it became a thing. Um, but when you're working through painful things with characters, they will process them in ways that sometimes we don't allow ourselves to process our own trauma. Um, and it can be incredibly helpful. I think that it's it's a sacred thing to be able to do that, to be able to write stories that help people do that. Um, and with Buffy, sometimes the erasure of her trauma sent the "oh, stop your whining and get over it" message to me. You know, and that was that that was something I questioned a bit. I'm still pretty. You definitely. definitely did, and very very well. By the way, those are you and Noel. Noel's great on those shows. My God, oh, she Noel. It's so oh, she brilliant. is. She the more she spoke, the more I just got accustomed to just the brilliant things that came out of her mouth because she was watching it all for the first time, at least most of it. Um, oh, just just great. Yeah. I loved working oh, with Noelle. It was such she's, a joy. She's great. Such a joy. Uh, right now, Brilliant. I'm towards the end of season three of Angel, and then, mm-hmm. oh, God, I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about season four. 
that's all I'll say. Oh my God. <laughs> it was a lot. Wait. And still dead. Kelly, yeah, Dr. Kelly Jones and I did uh, still yes. dead together to talk about Angel. And it was such a joy to work with her. I love working with her on anything I can work with her on. Um, but yeah, like season four was so difficult. We actually broke from season four for a while to do good omens because we couldn't take it. Like it was too it much. Is. We were doing two episodes yeah. a week, um, watching and it was oh it was it was real tough but the thing is that if you can if you can make your way through season four of angel i think season five oh, has God. a lot of rewards it's so awesome it. mm-hmm. um yeah yeah so I, I you mentioned season six of buffy and you know jen hated yeah. season six and i think what it yep. comes down to is i think the first time you watch it i think it's tough to process because like you said i think we're yeah. conditioned mm-hmm. but i think the more i've watched that season i've gone through the show I think about three, three or four times at this point, mm-hmm. I, I've grown to like it more and more. And I think yeah. if people kind of mm-hmm. give it that chance and realize that, you know, it's not all about snark and saying the quips. Uh, there's a lot to like in that, especially when it comes to Spike. I think. Oh, yeah. I think Spike has some amazing stuff in season six. But here's the thing for uh, Jen. Jen, if you're listening, um, I can understand anybody who doesn't like season six um, because season six has at its core in the trio um, the villains that are these three um, yes. you know, just like mediocre white dudes who are just tearing everything down because they feel entitled to do it. Um, that the first time I saw season six, I hated season six. Um, and I have gradually grown to like it more every time I've watched it because I've realized that that was a discussion we were going mm-hmm. to have about these three dudes rather than just seeing once again that kind of archetype come in. And I mean, this was before like incels yeah. were a big discussion that we were having mm-hmm. culturally. This was before like you know white male entitlement was a conversation we were having culturally um there are a lot of things in season six that touch on things that quite honestly as a woman enrage me um but i feel like they are touched on in a way that um that we're going to talk about it and not just pretend boys will be boys and this is okay um season six of buffy is not a boys will be boys season um so it can be very very challenging i know i hated it the first time i saw it and i've grown since to love it so i hope that jen will give it another chance especially if she likes the rest Uh, of buffy well uh one more thing i wanted to talk (laughs) about um you mentioned joss whedon and joss whedon is a guy who as a writer as somebody who wrote mm-hmm. on the side and wanted to be a writer, really, really was, I, I, I don't want to say icon, but somebody I really looked up to because of the way he told stories. And he kind yeah. of felt like one of us, yeah. you know, one of us geeks who is getting to do what he loves right. to do. And you handled something very well on your show where in the midst of you guys recording that show, uh, I think mm-hmm. Charisma Carpenter had come out with her thing yeah. about what happened and what kind of set that Buffy Angel sets were Mm -hmm. and that was very well done kind of tell me how how did you feel as somebody who enjoyed joss whedon but is a woman that this woman comes out and she says that some somebody that we really really like isn't really that good of a person yeah uh it's challenging it's not the first time that's happened um there are a lot of creators out there i think jk rowling is having quite a moment with this um and uh Here's the thing. I, first of all, I think that people are complicated. 
right? Um, Joss Whedon is an amazing writer, and I'm never going to say otherwise. He's an amazing writer. He's one of my favorite writers. I love the stuff that he does. I learned so much from watching his shows and paying attention to the ways in which Mm -hmm. he wrote. Um, So he is a complicated person. He is a flawed person. Um, I think that there are um, things that he has done. First of all, I like. I hope. I, I don't know if this goes without saying, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I, I side with the victims. Mm-hmm. I absolutely believe every single one of them. I believe Ray Fisher yeah. from Justice League. I believe Chris McCarpenter. Um, I believe everyone. Um, you know, and I'm absolutely on their side in this. Um, that said. Uh, a television show is worked on by more than one person. Um, I certainly hope that Charisma Carpenter is getting residuals from Buffy and from Angel, right? Because if not, then her agent has done her dirty, mm-hmm. right? Um, but not just her, the writers, the producers. There are hundreds and hundreds of good people who've worked on all of these shows, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so... If we boycott those shows, if we don't give any more money to those shows, those people don't get Mm -hmm. paid, right? And I don't think that Joss Whedon is a person that I want to be a reason why he's hurting anybody else. Like, I don't want to contribute to his harm done to anyone else. So that's, like, my first space that I went to on this. Um, In addition, people can be two things at once. Joss Whedon can be a terrible human being um, and also a brilliant writer. He can be both of those things at once. He can do terrible things on the set and create a world and stories that speak to us and that heal us through our trauma. Those two things can be true at once. I think that we have to start the world is getting infinitely more complicated, right? You know, I mean, you think about the terms of entropy and as far as like science goes, that we are constantly moving from lower entropy to higher entropy. I think that is true scientifically. It is true in, you know, in theoretical physics, and it is also true in culture. We are moving into an increasingly complex cultural state every single day. And if I boycott Buffy, that does nothing to John Sweden. That doesn't hurt him much mm-hmm. at all, right? But it hurts people who worked with him. It hurts with the people who were his victims, right? Um, who were, from my understanding, plenty. Um, so that is a, is a thing for me, like when I'm, when I'm wrestling with this. And when I'm wrestling with this with all of um, the people whose work I have enjoyed, who have turned out to be like less than admirable, you know, coming like, you know, going on the scale from like Aziz Ansari down to Harvey yeah, Weinstein, yeah. right? You know, if that's your scale, right? Josh is, Josh is a lot closer to, uh, to Harvey, I think. Um, and, and that's bad. Um, but the thing is, is that like my concern is that Josh Whedon doesn't ever, ever, ever have another job where he is in a position of power over people. Um, I think that that's something that should not happen in the future, that that learning from this, you know, and this is another one of those situations where, like, you know, we as individual consumers are somehow tasked with the responsibility, right, of fixing this. When the responsibility goes to, you know, the people who are, like, making the decisions about who to hire, Uh you know, like when somebody has done terrible, terrible things, hey, how about they don't get to have this job that pays them millions of dollars? How about they have to get a job like the rest of us if they need to, if they already haven't made enough money to live off of, you know, comfortably for the rest of their lives, they can get a job like the rest of us schmoes. I think that that's just fine, but don't be in a position of power, you know? Um, 
So there are a lot of things I think that we as a culture really need to work out. But I think that, and this goes for Orson Scott Card. This goes for like everybody. Like Woody Allen, I never liked Woody Allen films before the whole thing. So for me, it's no big deal. It's not really a boycott so much as I wasn't going to watch him anyway. Um, but I also don't think that he should be near young girls. <laughs> like I also think that he probably needs to go to jail. Uh, but I don't like, you know, again, like that is something that is that is the responsibility of the bigger authorities in our culture um so all of it to be said that with every single time that we as consumers of art and of um stories when we are faced with somebody who has has shown themselves uh to be a dangerous human for other people right you know to be a not safe person um, I think the best thing that we can do is, one, support the victims in whatever way possible, two, listen to the victims and hear what they want from us. Mm-hmm. What do they need from us? Sometimes all they need is validation. They just need to know that they have been heard and that this is out there. Um, so I think that that is a good thing to do. Um, go through any of their social media, <laughs> like if somebody's saying something like this and you go down, look at their the comments that are there and try to mitigate the pain and the harm that are being done by really evil people in social media comments. That, I think, is much more meaningful than boycotting Buffy, a show that I've loved my entire life. Um, or at least not my entire life, but at least since I've yeah. known of it. You know? uh, and so I think that there are a lot of different things that we can do. Like, if you don't like what J.K. Rowling is doing, like, you cannot buy the next Harry Potter book, and that's totally fine. I think that there's a lot of harm in those books, especially if you understand what her background yeah. is. Um, but, you know, like, support um, pride you know, charities, support trans charities, support charities that keep trans black women safe, for fuck's sake. Yeah. Like, that is something. That's where you are needed. Like, if you feel passionately about what these people are doing, take the focus off of them. Put it on their victims. Contribute to charities that help the people who have been harmed, you know? Um, that's one of the things that, like, you can you can do that are as actually helpful. Um, you can do that in addition to a boycott, but stop making Making it about J.K. Rowling. Stop making it about Joss Whedon. Make it about the people who have been harmed and try to mitigate that harm for other people who are in that same group and experiencing these things. You know, um, so again, it's really complicated. Very, but you put it very elegantly because I, I feel the same exact way where you have those people out there, but I, you are absolutely right and put the focus on the victims and that's that's mm-hmm. very well put up. And if you love Harry Potter, Harry Potter was transformative yeah, for a lot of people it was. in their childhood. If you love Harry Potter, love Harry Potter. Yeah. Just donate some money or donate some time or do something for the people who you want to support. Um, and uh, and don't follow J.K. Rowling and don't listen to her and don't, you know, like, take any of that bullshit. Like, that's, you know, what she's doing is tremendous, tremendous harm. Um, and uh, and doing good to mitigate that harm is probably the best thing that you can do. But if something means something to you, if there is work out there that means that Ready Player One means something to a mm-hmm. lot of people, don't let that asshole take that away from you. Yeah. Like that's, you know. Um, yeah. Matt, when we started podcasting together, he said, because we do the retrospective format, like I mentioned earlier, and the big mm-hmm. thing he wanted to do when we started was Harry Potter because he grew up on it. And, yeah. You know, he's in, like I said, he's in his late 20s. So. It was mm-hmm. big for him to do, and as we were doing it, and all the stuff started coming out about him, it was really tough for him to actually 
process that and realize what kind of a person yeah. she was. So, yeah, it's it it, it it's is. gonna it's gonna affect every generation for sure. All right, Lonnie, I have kept you about an hour, about as long as I was thinking. But before you go, go ahead, do what you're terrible at, and tell people where they can find you. <laughs> All right. You can find me at LonnieDianeRich.com. Uh, my name Lonnie is spelled L-A-N-I, and then Diane Rich, exactly the way that you would expect. Um, the workshop is at YearOfWritingMagically.com, so you can spell that just the way it's spelled and find that there. Um, and also, I have Chipperish Media at Chipperish.com, um, so you can find those podcasts uh, you know, out there. You can get the whole list of all the podcasts that I do and then find them on whatever podcast app you listen to. Um, but Garrett, thank you so much for inviting me to hang out with you today. It was really wonderful to uh, to chat about all of this stuff, and I appreciate you giving me this well, time. Well, it's thank awesome. You. And you know what? If you decide to do one on Mad Men or if you decide to do one on mm-hmm. House, I'm sure other people will be willing to. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, those are two of my favorite shows, too, and I awesome. I would I would definitely love to dive into those. Lonnie, Diane. Well, invite me on. I will come on any of your shows if you want to talk about something. Just let me know and let me know what to look at and what to read. How the hell do you have time for all these shows? I do one big podcast and like maybe a set during the week. I can barely – well, I also edit all of oh, them, and I'm very yeah. meticulous when it comes to them too. So. You're doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a lot. I mean, I you know what I've started doing is working in seasons. I noticed that. So instead yeah. of having a whole bunch of shows concurrently, I'll do a season of this and a season of that and then take a break and all of that, and I find that that – makes it easier for me to do the things that I want to do. Like, you know, if you're talking about a show or something and you have a movie for me to watch and it's one episode that I can come in and just do a guest spot with, yeah, absolutely. Like anybody who wants me on their podcast, I will always oh say Oh my yes. God. Don't 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 put <laughs> that in my head. Oh man. We have let's put it this way. Matt has he has a five year slate all set for us to do of movies uh-huh. and okay. series that we're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't put that in my ear because I will find one and I will bring you on. <laughs> I will guest on a show anytime. You're amazing. Thank you, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I would like to thank Lonnie for taking the time out to talk. You heard it here first, folks, that she is open to do a retrospective. And I know Matt has a slate of five years ahead of him. Who knows? Maybe we'll bring her on for one of those. She uh, She's amazing on the air, and I cannot thank her enough. And please, I'm actually thinking myself of joining the writing workshop that she has just because I would like to own my writing skills and keep them going I haven't really written too much in the last few years, but I would love to keep those skills, and she is tremendous for that. So that'll do it for the special Percolated Media Holiday Podcast. Please tune in to our year-end special where we talk about our favorite movies of the year, and we have the first six-month slate of retrospectives that we have coming up, along with so many other things. There's questions. Matt started this whole question thing that has kind of gotten out of control, and I have a feeling that that podcast is going to be as long as Titanic. But thank you all for listening. Thank you for supporting us in our first year in existence. I know April was when we officially launched, but this has been going on for longer than that, and I look forward to many more years with these guys, and we can't do it without you guys listening. So, thank you very much, and until next week, Happy New Year. I've been searching deep down in my soul Words that I'm hearing are starting to get old It feels like I'm starting
They got the mustard. Ah. They got the mustard.